The Hand Engraving Podcast is back for year two with our very first three-person episode. My guests today are Sean Cheatham and Lee Griffiths, and you have a seat at the table. Roll the music! Welcome to the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast on hand engraving. I'm your co-host for this episode, Sean Cheatham. And I'm Wade Oliver Wilson, Master Engraver. Welcome to the second year of the Hand Engraving Podcast, the world's greatest podcast dedicated to the art and artists of hand engraving. As you may recall, the uh, very first guest on this show last year at this time was my friend, Sean Cheatham. Sean is a internationally known oil painter. He's a knife maker. Gosh, what, what am I forgetting, Sean? Um, I play music a little bit and I illustrate all that. I um, he, he really is one of the very best artists that I know. And uh, I invited him back to be on the show for the beginning of the second year. And I asked him who he would like to do a show with. And the very first name he came up with was Mr. Lee Griffiths. And so let us go ahead and introduce Lee. You probably know Lee as a uh, world famous engraver. He is a FIGA master engraver. If you've ever been to the FIGA uh, banquet at the big convention, you've seen Lee many, many times getting just about every award that you could possibly get. And uh, what am I forgetting, Lee? Oh, teacher, also a painter, I believe. Is that right? I've dabbled. <laughs> well, at any rate, welcome, fellas. How are y'all doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Right. Happy to, happy to be here. Yep. Flattered and bewildered that anybody would care what I have to say. No. Oh, gosh. That's only because you've never spoken to yourself before. <laughs> no, I do it all the time. It's just the problem is it's just one, one dumb guy talking to another. <laughs> Very good. Well, what, what have you been up to since, uh, since the FIGA convention, Lee? Oh, uh, I am right at the end of a 23-gun project, and I will be so glad when it is done. Wow. I'll do it at the same time or do over a span of years? No, they're, they're all do it at the same time. It's the same, it is the same pattern on all 23 guns. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's mm. a limited edition type of thing. Not, not quite much? as limited as you'd like, I suppose. <laughs> How much um, coverage are you doing on those guns? Uh, maybe 50%. Okay. Uh, it is probably the most stressful project I've ever done. From this standpoint, uh, the gun's really hard metal, but I knew that going in. And they're 1911s. The... Uh, the stainless has been blackened, and then I have to cut through the blackening to expose the silver underneath. Has a wonderful bling factor. Wow, that's a uh, that was pretty nervy of you to even take that job. No, stupid probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Uh, but for all you new engravers out there. Um, Probably don't start with something like that. Lee is a professional. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Sean, what have you been up to lately? I've, I've noticed some really cool paintings. Yeah, we're um, working on same thing. I just finished a, a big commission that was kind of one of my more stressful. It was a knife. The first time I ever did an engraving, I just actually, uh, as far as for sale, because I do it, I dabble on the side as a hobby. Um, but we're working on some art shows right now I, I was just in one in the past weekend and had to bring some art up to a gallery in san francisco and then now i've got about four weeks until my uh next show in june and so i'm just kind of tr cranking out paintings for that and then uh, getting ready to leave for the summer to teach in italy oh wow yeah very cool well gentlemen the reason i asked you here is because i want to specifically talk to you about art and that as it relates to engraving so uh every, anyone who's ever seen lee's work knows that he is uh, not a one-trick pony your work has it's almost always got uh, 
Polino uh, portraits and scenes. And you've done some Art Deco stuff that's super cool. And not only that, of course, you, you make a lot of uh, what we would think of just traditional scroll work. What style was it that you saw and said, that is something that it really appeals to me? What got me into engraving? A desire to leave farming. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Cliff Notes version of my story is I've always enjoyed drawing ever since I was little. But I, you know, went back to the farm. My dad needed me, so I went back to the farm. And um, artistic pursuits just did not really exist. I would just scribble and dabble and whatever. My neighbors came down one day. They had been playing around with some handmade knives. And they came down. They said, we need these embellished. They knew that, you know, I could draw pretty good. I said, what do you mean? Well, scrimshaw or engraving. I had heard the word engraving, but I didn't have a visual of what they were talking about. Scrimshaw, I'd never even heard the word. Um, they said, well, we've got some photographs in a, in a magazine of some engraved knives. We'll go grab them. And I looked at it and I thought, well, I'm not worried about the art side of this, but I technically, I have no clue how this is done. But it piqued my interest. It was all black and white. I am moderately colorblind. And uh, piqued my interest enough, I started nosing around until I found, I found a fellow that, that did some engraving about 25 miles away and went in and started to visit with him on occasion during the winter. I guess the rest is history. Very good. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and uh, I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on this, is um, what we do when it comes to traditional scroll work is not greatly different than what was done in ancient Rome or all the, you know, probably before that. It seems like it's always been on firearms since firearms started being developed in what the 14th 15th century why do you think it is that scroll work has has carried through to modern day as being an embellishment for firearms that's a tough question i, oh. I think i mean i do think that like you mentioned it being on firearms but if you go to when you go to europe or italy in particular um it's not it's on everything it's on every corner it's on every um, frame it's so it's it's really more every fence um the stuff is everywhere so i don't i think it's just such a big part of art and design that that's not going anywhere and i think it's just it's tried and true i think good art is timeless and if it's pleasing and people enjoy it whatever whatever the style or the design elements that's going to carry on from one generation to the next. And so the current generation is going to enjoy it just as much as people back in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Good design is pleasing and everybody will like it and it's timeless. Good art, good art's there. So many times on forums, I have seen the question come up asked by new engravers or maybe someone that's got a little bit of time at the bench and they'll say, why do we have to use scroll work in engraving? And that, I mean, I've always been surprised when people come up with that question, just because to me, it's always been obvious that that scroll work is not engraving. You know, scroll work is scroll work. It just happens to be that we're engravers and we put it on stuff. And um, yeah, I don't, I didn't know if anybody had ever asked you that question, how you answered that. Um, scroll is just a design element. I mean, engraving is the actual execution of whatever. It's, it's the medium that you're using sure. as opposed to drawing or painting or sculpture. Uh, scroll is just a design element. And, you know, you don't have to use traditional stuff. You referenced some of my art deco. There's no scroll work in there to speak of. Um, and I make decisions on what would be appropriate to the gun based upon a lot of different things. And in the case of the Art Deco, 
you know, it was a period piece. And I thought, let's go to the art style of that period and use that. It might be Art Nouveau. It might be based upon Alphonse Mucha. It might be, you know, it can be all kinds of things. But scroll is universally appealing when it's done well and designed well. So it continues to be kind of the basis, I think, of a lot of uh, at least firearms engraving. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in actuality, the, the function of a, uh, and I was just discussing this with someone who was asking me questions last night, the functionality of an engraver is not different than the functionality of a pencil. It, it only makes one line at a time, and of course, unless you're using a liner. Uh, it's, you know, you, there, there are not that many things you can do with it other than a V cut, a square cut, and a round cut, and then you control the depth, and that's really... That's the long and short of engraving and the, what you do with it is totally up to you. But uh, talking about, specifically talking about your Art Deco gun, which was on, uh, was on a 1903 Colt, the one I saw, you've probably done others. The world of firearms went through, you know, the industrial revolution with everyone else. And the 1903 and specifically, was a very modern looking handgun to the, to the point where even today, if you had one, it still looks modern. And Art Deco is all about being modern. And I think the, the marriage of those, those two things, the gun and that style were absolutely great. And it, when you see your gun matched up with Art Deco and you see a modern gun like a Glock or some other tactical gun, matched up with scroll work. Sometimes I find that there's a little bit of a, it's a little too mixed. It's, it's, it doesn't necessarily go together. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, every project that I do, the decision-making for the design, you know, I'm, I'm going to consider a number of different factors. With the Art Deco, yeah, 1903 Colt Hammerless. It was nicknamed the gangster gun because it has a real slim profile and all of them carried one in their pocket. It was a great concealed carry. And so that was the nickname, the gangster gun. Great. So let's do a gangster theme. 1920s. What was the style that was popular in the 1920s? It's Art Deco. And also, as you mentioned, the lines on the gun really lent themselves to an Art Deco design. They just kind of seemed to fit together. So all of these different elements went together to say, yeah, this is what this gun should need. But you're right, another gun, it probably wouldn't be the best choice. Sean, do you run into anything like that with uh, in your work? I mean, I guess in some ways, yeah. I think it's, uh, well, my thoughts on it are, I mean, what Lee's saying makes complete sense. I always kind of see guns from different eras and think, well, why wouldn't you just engrave from whatever the design is happening at the time? Um, I got interested in the the firearms engraving, looking at the old West stuff. So I really like love that period of engraving and that style of firearm and everything. So that kind of became where I started looking and trying to learn and understand scrolls. But now I've kind of met so many different people and seen so many different styles and like just lee talking about art deco like there's no rules you know and I, and I like i like that idea and then you mentioned like a modern gun with old school engraving i think sometimes it's cool to combine the two you know some sort of weird hybrid of an old style with a new style if it's done in a way that's maybe tasteful and and new or interesting but yeah i don't think enough people think about those types of things like how it's related and what and why like what, what's the design like floral stuff might not look good with on top of something that has a lot of clean straight lines you know you might want bigger longer shapes or um i don't think in my work i get it so much but who knows i'm all over the place with what i do it's like with painting i do like old western looking stuff but i do modern tattooed people and everything and i do combine them sometimes and i think that becomes actually interesting for people and maybe it's just because of the way I paint it, they, it's believable to them. So I guess if you if you are going to combine things that don't seemingly go together, do it well. <laughs> so, Sean, here's a question for you. Okay. I have combined a couple of different styles on some of the projects. And my rule of thumb, I, I have a couple of them. One is uh, 
if I'm going, I, I rarely will do more than two styles. And if I do two styles, I'm going to have probably 80% one style and 20% the other. I want, I don't want a 50-50 because I think they fight from a design yeah. standpoint. Uh, so I want a dominant subordinate. I want, you know, kind of an 80-20 rule, maybe a 70-30 at the most. Mm -hmm. But one just needs to be kind of an accent for the other. Yeah. Yeah. I love Does that, that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, I always tell people that too, just with like, you, even something so simple as the, the painting the two eyes, make one of them more important, make one dominant, make one the star of the show. Or when we're talking about color and light, uh, light and shadow, for example, I would say make the light or the shadow, the star and the other one, the kind of supporting cast. So I would say that makes a lot of sense because if you have two types of designs and equal amounts, um, they're definitely fighting for attention and it confuses the viewer. But if you do one where it's like the main star of the show and then like the supporting cast or the little, you know, whatever, I think that's the best way to, uh, to do that. Oh man, you and I could have so much fun sitting down and having a chat. Yeah, right. I know. That's why I like right when... Get busy chatting. Yeah. I mean, that's what we had started this conversation at the engraving show. And I just knew like we had so much art to talk about. And then we went to your, um, presentation too about Bellino and I just heard so much more I could listen to you talk all day about it so one of the things I've been thinking about that's in the same vein is uh are you familiar with the second man theory which has more to do with architecture than what we're doing but it basically boils down to uh let's say there's a space between two buildings and you you've been tasked with building the building in between there and you've got to make your your thing work with what's already existing and and um i think as engra engravers that's something that really faces us because whether it's a gun or a knife or jewelry or whatever we are taking in a canvas that already has part of the decision made for us you know what i mean like uh yeah lots of borders to work within right and that's to me that's a place that there's so many things to learn in engraving to me, learning how to work with what's there and to bend it to my needs is, is a really big skill to learn that I think a lot of people don't have. Yeah, and what I would add to that is there's a, there is a defined shape that we are working with, but that doesn't mean that we can't modify that in some way by the use of borders or different things to create a little different shape of the panel that we're actually working with. You can put, if, if you have a long rectangular piece, you could put a border on each end and basically narrow that long rectangular shape a little bit. Visually, you can manipulate it in ways with borders and a few other optical tricks. Absolutely. Uh, Sean, you your work usually starts off i suppose as a rectangle or whatever canvas yeah, that you're yeah. do, when you when you engrave do you feel like it's uh like it's a major hindrance that you are coming into it as a second man and and have to have to work with what's there instead of having a wide open canvas um, I would say it's something I've had to start getting used to, but I've studied design and, and all that and, and worked within, had to work within other shapes and borders too, just for, for illustration jobs. Like I did a packaging for GI Joe recently and it had to have like this whole angle cut out and fit and then wrap around a corner. So I did have to address it, but engraving is different for sure. And there's a lot more shapes and it is always three-dimensional and some of the shapes are convex and some are concave. That's quite different than the flat parts um but you know i think there's great books out there like lee's book i have right next to me about how to fill in spaces and how to use how to use the how to design it within those spaces and i think like it's really helpful to uh study that stuff like i don't know i think it's just one of those things that i'm still trying to figure out and i and i think it's easier for me to design in a square rectangle for sure just based on experience at this point when i design engraving i I probably spend tens of hours designing small sections over and over and over because I just feel like there's so many possibilities. I'm not at a place yet where I feel comfortable committing hundred percent. It's always like, oh, I could change this. I could change that. 
do either of you have anything at this point you'd like to bring up? Um, I'm kind of curious about, I, I mean, this is related to some of the engraving, but I had some just questions for Lee about his, like just tools and stuff. Like, do you, did you use pneumatic tools? You use microscopes? Um, and maybe at some point you didn't, like, how do you feel about just tools in general and, and, and what you're using? And what I started, do you use? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, if you ever saw my first tools, you would laugh. I started out, first of all, the, we had no money on the farm. I, there was no way I was going to afford any expensive equipment if I had even known about it, which I didn't. I made my own hammer out of an old broken hammer handle from the shop, just thinned it down on a bench grinder and then got a chunk of steel and fashioned it on a bench grinder and, you know, drilled a hole in it and put it over and drove some wedges in there. That was my hammer. My first, uh, my first hand tool that I put the gravers in was a carriage bolt that I welded a little pin vise on the end that I could chuck up, you know, just a blank graver or a graver that I had sharpened and found out that the threads on carriage bolts are really tough on hand. So I found some old industrial hose and slid it up over it. And I, I, and I, and I didn't have money for a vice. I had a bag of wheat <laughs> that my wife sewed up for me and I would put a plate in there and I would hammer away and of course it's gonna move. I'd, I'd whack it a few times and then I'd reposition it, whack it a few times and reposition it. That's how I got started. Now I've transitioned into pneumatic and microscope and all of that. You know, I had a little, what did I have? A $15 Optivisor type device that I got from the hardware store. But that was enough years ago that my eyes were a little bit better. And as I get older, I've moved more to the microscope because it helps my eyes. And it's a lot better on my back and my neck. I can sit upright a lot more rather than being hunched over. And I've moved away from the hammer and the, and the you know, the hand push tool, the burin, whatever you want to call it. Um, what people need to understand is when you move to the modern stuff, the pneumatic or the electric type uh, engraving systems, it's not going to make you a better engraver. The learning curve might be a little faster, but the quality of work isn't going to be any better. Just, just look at the old masters from Europe mm -hmm. that are still using the hammer and the burn. Uh, you can't tell me they would be any better if they went to a different machine. And I've told my students for years, you give a master engraver a broken screwdriver, he knows how to sharpen it, he knows how to use it, he will turn out master quality work. I'm in favor of buying the best equipment you can afford, but don't do it with the hope and the dream that you all of a sudden will be jumped two levels in your abilities. It's not going to happen. And if something happened to my right hand, I think it would only be a month before I would be turning out the same quality of work with my left hand because I know what is supposed to happen. Yeah, that. Well, it, both of you fellas are great artists, like I've said over and over, and I firmly believe. Lee, your work is very painterly. And uh, did you have a background in oil painting before, or painting in general before you got into engraving? Or how did you, how did you come about that? Okay, I'm almost em embarrassed to say this, but my total art training is one semester at a junior college <laughs> me too <laughs> that's one design class for me that's more than my engraving training but um i'm always asking why i'm always digging in deeper and trying to understand why things are the way they are and so I think I've come to a pretty good understanding of scroll anatomy and different things. And I ask lots of questions and I look and I, I know what I like. And then I start asking, why do I like it? What are the principles behind this that, that make it solid? 
And I, I think that's huge. So much of what I think of as being your work with these great scenes and, and portraits and things that you do, um, this, they're not heavy on, um, on incised lines and deeply incised lines, but instead, you know, a Bellino style that is mostly lines, but I'm sure you incorporate everything, uh, dots and whatever it takes to do the job. Um, to get into that style of work, knowing that the one constant between all engravers is that what is white is, is the only thing that's free. If it's gray, it costs money. If it's black, it costs money because you have to work that metal to get it to go gray and black. So when you decided that you were going to work in that way to, to make portraitures and, and to make things that were so reliant on accurate shadows and, and, um, and contrast, was that, a, was that a leap of faith for you or is it something that you just naturally came to over time? I th there's a lot of natural stuff there. I've always, you know, I, I said I've drawn since I was a little kid and it was just learning um, what makes a drawing look more realistic and then starting to understand light and shade and the areas of light and shade and how to create different illusions. I will say this, whether it's engraving or painting or sculpture, drawing is the, is the foundation and the fundamental skill for all of those. And, you know, people say, well, I want to learn Bellino. Teach me Bellino. Fine. But the first thing I'm going to do is teach you how to draw because engraving or Bellino is nothing more than engraving or drawing with, an, with a graver. That's all Bellino is. I don't care whether you use lines or dots or a combination. It's just drawing with a graver. And if you don't understand drawing fundamentals, light and shade, perspective, you know, contours, those types of things, your Bellino will never be as convincing as you would like it to be. Both of you fellas are, are teachers when it comes, uh, Sean teaches painting. And of course, Lee has a series of uh, classes that he does online. Um, Sean, I guess by the time people are gonna take classes with you, they already know how to draw. No, not necessarily. I've taught all levels, even from like kindergarten through whatever. So yeah, I take everybody. Well, yeah, I guess that's true because I call and bother you about stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and some of my stuff is pretty, pretty remedial, I got to admit. Oh, right. I am curious about how the teaching is going online for Leah. That was one of my sort of questions. I love learning online. I love the access to all these great artists that I can learn from online. But personally, I've been a teacher in person, so I haven't like quite figured out transitioning to being an online teacher. But I think there's so much potential there. I've done both. I've taught in the classroom a fair amount. And now I'm doing online. They're different. If I had my preference, I would do the, uh, I would do the classroom because it's more personal, it's more satisfying. I can read the class, I can see who's really struggling, I can go give them individualized help. Online, it's, it's impersonal, and all you're doing is dispensing information, and you, and you hope you're giving them good information that they can really use and run with, but you're never quite sure how it's being received, and your ability to answer questions is also a little bit limited online. But I still think that it's a great forum because it's so much cheaper mm -hmm. for people, and they can do it at their own convenience. My classes are all recorded. and They're available on demand. So a new engraver can come in in a year, and they can go into the library and you know, they can buy any class they want. And, or if somebody's not available for the live stream, they can, they can watch it at their convenience, whatever. So there's a real place for online, I think. Um, I guess that's kind of the short answer. And, you know, in an hour and a half, how much can I really show and demonstrate? It, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's something I just thought about because what Sean is doing happens very quickly compared to, to compared to engraving. Yes. I mean, you can you can cover a lot more area in a yeah, short yeah, amount of time brush, when you're sure. painting. It, does that make it easier, you think, to to teach oil painting or or more difficult because you're moving from one idea to the next more quickly? 
I think, I mean, for teaching, for me, getting it out, getting the idea, the thoughts out, it's easier, it's faster, probably. But for a student, it might be too much information at one time. I mean, I can, I'll do an oil painting demonstration portrait in three hours, and I'll talk about it the whole time, and it'll be done by the end of it. And that might be a lot of information for people to to digest in three hours, but I don't really expect it either. I just like to throw everything out there and then you take what you can, but I'll never stop like giving advice, talking, sharing what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, I would say I, I haven't, I don't know about it. as far as teaching engraving, it's such a, such a slower art form that like, I don't know how I would even approach doing it other than talking about drawing a lot, because even with painting, it's like the biggest problem everybody has always, most often the biggest mistakes are drawing issues. It always starts with drawing. Yep, draftsmanship. Yep. Yeah. My philosophy in teaching, and maybe this is in some, certainly different than some that I've seen out there, but I am committed to this way of teaching. And that is the first thing I always want to teach is the why. I wanna teach principles and I wanna teach why. And after that, then I will teach how to apply those principles. And I might show them three, four, or five different ways to apply the principle. But if all you do is, I refuse to teach what I call formula engraving. In other words, well, this is how you do a feather. Mm -hmm. Okay. For an example, if somebody says, well, this is how you do a feather, my question is going to be, really? What if it's out at the end of the wing and it's in flight, in motion? What if it's next to the body and it's roosting on a post? I'm going to render those or engrave those completely different based upon the principles that I understand to create motion and form, speed, those types of things. So when I go in and engrave, I'm going to stress principles and why. Why, 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 why is it this way? And why would it be different? That maybe is my farming background because every breakdown that was out in the field was never textbook. All you, all you could do is base your repairs and what needed to be done on principles that you had learned and understood. I think and that's I, a, such an excellent point. Uh, one of the things I fight against when I'm trying to teach people online is, is what I think of as being superstition more than anything. People have heard these rules from other engravers and yeah when it happened to the other engraver maybe that was the right choice then but that may not be the right choice now right once i saw somebody's video online about shading and they said you always do this and they say okay well you always make this line and you always make this line i said no you don't shading it Shading differs with how the light's hitting it, right? And, and I've bothered Sean about this one million times. When we have scroll work, are we looking at it from the side where, where there's a raking light to it or where we put the light? Are we looking at it from above? Does it need to even live in a real world? There's all these factors out there. And uh, I would encourage people not to lock themselves in with, superstition but do what lee is saying which is understand what you're trying to accomplish and why you're trying to accomplish it yeah i mean you might use sculptural lighting which is the most common i think for the 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 way that people do their shading or you might use directional lighting which can create more of a 3d effect in some ways because you can be casting shadows with that and other things but if you don't understand all of those things, you don't have the opportunity to make decisions. You're just locked in and a slave to that one thing that you've been taught, the formula engraving. And I, I'm, you know, I might well lose students because of the way I teach, because some people just want a turnkey operation. They don't, they don't want to have to think. They just want to come in and say, okay, this is how I do it. That's fine. And I'm not against that. Uh, that's, that works really well for some people. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'm going to teach it differently for the other type of people that want to know why so that they can make different decisions to pay, based upon uh, the circumstances. So Thursday, 
I don't know when this podcast comes out. <laughs> so this might after the I'm fact. Gonna, as soon as I hang up, I'm going to edit it and put it up so it'll be out Wednesday. Okay, Thursday, May 4th. I am doing a one and a half hour class on light and shade and explaining where you find the highlight and the halftone and the light tone and the cast shadow and the core shadow and what atmospheric light is and why and how you use it and all those different things to create a more realistic object, whether it's scroll work, leaves, whether it's an animal, you know, person, I don't care what it is. It is how you shade things that creates life and form inside the outlines. And it moves an object from being flat to actually having form. So you're taking something that's flat and in the uh, in full light and adding shadow to it. And when Sean works, as I've often discussed with him, he's working in the dark and bringing it out to light, right, Sean? Yeah, mostly. Or even sometimes a lot of painting is a middle and then you can go darker and lighter. But that's the difference, I guess, between like drawing on paper or engraving is you're not starting on a white ground. You can start on whatever color you want you can go both directions or you can like with paper or engraving you're going from you're just going darker and that's it you have that range do you have to adjust your mindset when you're engraving as can compared to when you're painting as far um, as what what direction you're headed with the the shadow or i guess you're so used to it it doesn't make too much of a difference yeah i mean i'm still trying to figure out you know I, I try to copy what people do so i'm trying to understand why they're doing it the way they do it which seems to me a lot of just like if it's farther away then it's darker that's sort of the, what i've noticed with a lot of engraving and shading of scrolls and stuff so yeah i mean i jump around through mediums all day long like from my guitar to my drawing to my ipad painting to oil painting so like i and or going out in the shop and and sanding a knife or forging something so i, I keep myself sort of always tuned up to do these types of things but i think for engraving it would definitely be just a little bit of getting used to getting clean lines again or sharpening tools because i have to take so much time off but Let as far as mindsets i do plan also so like if i'm going to engrave or paint something i have my version of it don't my reference ready you know like i'll, I'll adjust my rep i don't try and figure it out on the painting or on the engraving i figure it out on paper then i try and make it look like that in the art let me ask you about something you said you said things that are further away are darker and engraving what, what do you mean by i was that? just thinking like with with like kind of the standard maybe american scrolls you know it seems like there's like always a darker middle line you know and then it kind of shades out or, or like as the leaf goes into the where it hits the, the backbone or something it just darkens and that's it and then they and then highlights are, are white spaces left for the larger shapes it just seems like almost like if you were to, it's almost like if you were to, it's done with lines, but if you were to hammer them out with a punch or something, it would be a very shallow version of a relief. That's interesting. That's something I've been really looking into lately is when I first started trying to learn how to um, sculpt, I was mainly concerned about making the peaks in between the different sections. You know, this may be a lobe, this may be a leaf petal or whatever. And I wasn't happy with it. And I think what, I, what I'm discovering is that I actually want to put some, some Z depth into it. You know what I mean? I, mm -hmm. I want to get down into that metal further and, yeah. and where, where things are going back into the backbone, where they would be darkest, where all the shade lines converge. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to really cut those deep and have, have an emergence from, from below with that leaf. So that was interesting yeah. to me that you said that. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of my like like Lee talking about like trying to figure out why or how. What are these? What's everyone doing? I'm look. I mean, I have a bunch of Lee's work. I love some of the times where you're like on the castings where there's a great cast shadow, you know, a drop shadow, and that effect is amazing. But it goes against the other thing I was thinking as, as far as depth goes. That's more of a logical light thing where it's and directional light. Um, but I think you can combine those things too. And there's no, no real rules because you're like making something that looks two dimensional, something two dimensional, look three dimensional. That's on an actual three dimensional object. <laughs> so it's just yeah. like, there's a lot of room for, for playing. And as long as you like, like Lee said, like if you understand design principles, if you know things, you know, the rules, then you can kind of bend the rules to create something either new or interesting with the understanding of why and how things will work.
And for example, I've done a couple of scenes where what Sean was talking about, you can go, if you are just drawing, you can go with toned paper and you can have, you know, white pencil and you can have dark pencil. Or if you're painting, you, you do another painting of a certain tone and then you're working both directions. I've actually done that in places on some of the scene work that I've done and then burnished in the highlights. Mm -hmm. And this is where I, I want to teach the why and get people thinking so they're willing to experiment intelligently and push some borders. I would like to see engraving move into some new frontiers. That's interesting that you say that. What, uh, what, have, you, what have you got in mind? Fine art? Or you well, just want some <laughs> no, not so much the markets or that as much, well, it may end up there. That would be great. I'm just thinking in terms of technique because we seem to be locked into saying, okay, if you're doing Bellino, it's this tool geometry. Well, really? I've used about five different and I can tell you, you know, um, or if you're, like Sean said, uh, you know, there's kind of a standard way of shading that everybody does because they assume that's the right way to do it. Well, there are, I'm not saying it's wrong. It works, has worked for centuries, but are there other things that we can do intelligently making a conscious decision to get a little different effect, a little different look, texture, or illusion? I mean, it's all illusion. That's all it is. It's just an illusion. When I do 3D stuff, it's all an illusion. It's, you know, it's dead flat. I did, uh, I did one gun that I, I did a whole bunch of birds, a collage of birds in 3D. I sent a photo to one of my best clients. He called me up and he said, okay, how high above the steel is that main bird in the middle? That's Sandy Hill Crane. It's got to be three-eighths of an inch. I said, no, it's dead flat. No, it's not. It's got to be three-eighths. How, really? How high? I, and I finally convinced him, it's just dead flat. That's all it is. It's just an illusion created by intelligent shading. Okay, am I, uh, am I going on a limb calling myself an intelligent shader? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, you know, if you understand the principles, you can create different illusions. And you're not locked in. You're not a prisoner to the one thing that you taught or learned years ago. Very interesting. I've been thinking a lot about two things. Incorporating mesotint into engraving somehow. Yep. So that you've got an automatically dark background that you didn't have to work as hard to get. Maybe even, there's bound to be a way to acid etch or something to get that darkness. And the other thing I've been thinking about is painting with bluing uh, agents and building up the bluing color, using that as, uh, as another element in design. But uh, so far, I haven't, haven't actually gotten around to trying it. So I, <laughs> if you're listening, try it and let me know how it works out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been, I've been painting with the bluing stuff lately on a piece I did, but mostly just masking things off and trying different values to create almost like a poor man's inlay look on some brass where like the some stuff looks gold and some stuff looks almost steel bluish or um but you it's hard to control like what value like to get different values with it you know you can kind of rub it back and then do it again but sometimes like it doesn't take it sometimes it does and sometimes it won't stay sometimes it weirdly wears off which i don't understand so yeah, I've been thinking about that too. And, and I just got some titanium because I want to start playing with anodizing colors to see what kind of range can happen with just color and value in that, that world as well. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the Jewelry Institute of America, located in Houston, Texas, serving the entire world. Learn optical diamond setting and hand engraving from world-class instructors. Check out our courses online at the Jewelry Institute of America. And now, the news. Hey, y'all. I'm glad to be back in the studio. I want to say thank you to the ladies who made Women's Month possible. 
I hope you all enjoyed making your shows. I got a lot of good feedback about those episodes. Well done, ladies, especially you, Olivia Wilson, you brave little thing, you. So here we are in year two of the show. And this last year, I've learned a lot about making podcasts. I've gotten to speak to some of my very favorite. There are plenty more that I'd like to have on. I just haven't got to you yet. One show at a time, folks. For year two, I'm trying to have two guests per show to make the whole thing a little more conversational. I think it will add some interest to the interviews and in general, it will just make things much, much harder to schedule. Always raise the stakes. Always try to improve. That's how I roll. I have some other things that I'd like to talk about, but this show is already pretty long, so I will address these issues next time. For now, I will just say that if you've ever had the thought to publicly denigrate another artist, one, stop, don't do that. There's no future in this type of behavior. And two, you damn well better be right about what you're accusing someone of. Engravers are a very small community of artists that are making a living by their reputations for excellence. It's not right to slander each other online. Got a problem with somebody? Message them. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. That is all. And that's all I wanted to say this week. Let's get back to the show. I kind of wanted to just ask Lee about just based on that whole thing we're talking about, about pushing the art form, but also your thoughts on sort of how the current state of engraving and how social media has either affected you or how you feel it is affecting the whole game right now. I mean, we're on some media platform being social right now, so it's pretty amazing. But are there any other things you feel about it, positive or negative? No, I, I think social media is positive. I wish I understood it better. I tell people that my big technological jump was when I went from the yellow tiger number two to the mechanical pencil. <laughs> now I'm waiting for I, my next jump. And, I still uh, love the number two. You know, the teaching online, uh, the biggest hurdle there for me has been the technological side because I'm not a computer geek. I'm really not. Although when I talk to people about marketing and whatever, they say you need to be on Instagram, uh, Facebook's fine, but you need to be here, here, and here. And all marketing has gone kind of electronic. And mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, I'm just a simple farm boy. Yeah. I, I'm a terrible marketer. I'm not a good businessman. I'm, I'm a pretty good engraver. And I, I guess I need to get better at the rest of those things. One of the things that I've seen, though, over the years is there was a time when small English scroll was very identifiable and a German style scroll was. And you would look at something and say that's Italian or this is American scroll, these types of things. With the Internet and the ability to see so much work from so many people, it's hard People will say, well, what style is this? I don't know. It's a hybrid of three or four because people have access to so many photos and, and references now. Uh, you know, they're coming up with hybrid styles all over the place. And, and I do it too. I love them. But it has made it more difficult. And I don't even know that it's necessary. I don't get, really get hung up on labeling. Um, if it's well-designed and I like it, I don't really care what you call it. And if it's not well-designed, I don't care what you call it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's something I run into with the, the one style that I do the most. And I'm just about ready to start calling it my affordable style because <laughs> nothing else really fits. I mean, it's not American. It's not fine scroll. It's something that I learned straight out of Ron Smith's book. So for the long time, Longest time I called it Ron Smith scrolls, but then when I talked to Ron, he said, that's not Ron Smith style. And he showed me this other style of his. And so I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Well, just an example of what a lousy businessman I am. I think the smart guys have a business plan where they have one or two styles that are kind of signature styles that they do all the time because they can design it quite quickly and they can cut it quickly because they've done it so much. Well, they make a whole lot more money than I do because 
I never do the same thing twice. I am all over the place and I have no signature style that I'm aware of. Yeah, I like to mix it up too, but I definitely have one that uh, if someone says they're on a budget, that's what they're getting. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's a it's smart move on your part. I've just never been that smart. <laughs> what about you, Sean? You got it all oh, figured out yet? Yeah, right. I'm so all over the place, as you have heard. I don't even know if I want to be a painter or an engraver or a musician or whatever. I'll just well, do it all. If you ever brought your painting to engraving and were able to execute it the same way you do your painting, the rest of us would be looking for work pretty quick, I think. Um, I'm working on it, but not to take anybody out of work, just to learn and do it. <laughs> Sean, you and I need to have a chat because I have ideas and uh, a desire to push techniques a little bit more into a little mm. more painterly or uh, maybe a little looser or just incorporate all kinds of different things and move away yeah. from just all the traditional stuff. I, I'm feeling this, yes. And I mean, I'm looking at some, I have your some of your castings and just seeing them up close, you know, I can, I can tell there's just so much more artistic drawing and like, it makes me curious about what this art can be turned into, you know? Yeah. I'd love to rap more about that. And, and because I do knife making, I do play with a lot of metals and a lot of patinas and different things. So I've got all this stuff to play with. And then I've got my engraving set up now too. So I'm just kind of like, there's so much you can do. It's crazy. Like that people aren't doing more than, you know, you see like people making all kinds of crazy colors and metal and you see some people sculpting things really well. And then you see people just doing really solid shading, but like bringing it all together, there's, there's a lot of potential. Yep. There's just one other element that, that is needed. The client that is willing to pay to let you do it. I know. Yeah, that's why I just, I play a lot. I, I use my painting as my job and pay my bills because I know I can do it and I play with metal. I don't, I, I honestly don't like taking, I get people asking me to do commissions in metal and, and knives and it's like, that's not why I do it. I really only do it because I need some sort of artistic outlet. That's not my bill paying artistic outlet. And so metal work is it. And so I'm at a place where I feel like because I'm not relying on, it's not my job. I can, maybe I'm a little more free to play with it. So you can use me to play with it. I guess we don't need the client. <laughs> I'll mess it's, around. It's your therapy. It is my therapy. Yeah. It's what keeps my head straight a little bit. Like if I'm I mean, I, I love painting, but like, you know, when you pay your bills with your art, it's not, you don't do it all. Like, I don't do it for fun anymore. I love it. I do. But like, you don't catch me doing it after, after a day of work. I'm not going to sit down and paint something else. I'd rather go engrave or draw some scroll or change my mindset. You know, I understand that because in some ways I don't enjoy engraving as much now as I once did because it is a job. And I've discovered that bill collectors are highly motivating. Oh, yeah. They never go away. Yeah. It's it's really great to be able to pay the bills with our art, I would say. Like, I, I wouldn't want it any other way. But it does something to you, I think. Or it does something to you with your relationship to the your original art love. Well, I will say this. It beats farming. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. At least for me. There are passionate farmers out there. Bless them. I'm so happy for them. I was never one of them. I was just saying over the weekend, driving through some farmland, I was like, you know, we're not often thankful enough for people that do this for us, that farm so we can eat. Yeah. Kind of underappreciated. Like everybody's got to eat and people are farming all the time. And I had neighbors that absolutely loved it. Yeah, that brings up a whole nother show topic is something else I think about is how pointless my job is. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, we are not, we are, we are strictly luxury. Nobody really needs what we do. Yep. But Nobody needs physically what we do, but I think the universe needs the art that people create. I think so. Yep. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, uh, I guess that's going to wrap it up unless there's something else y'all want to talk about. Unless you want to ask about a biggest failure in a career. Do you, would you like to do that? I, I wasn't even sure I was going to bring it back for this year, but I, I don't want you to feel yeah, left okay. out. I wasn't sure if you were doing that still. I, or not. No, I'd love to. I'd love to. Hey, Lee. <laughs> yeah. Is there, 
has there ever been a time in your career when something you worked on just did not work out? Um, at some point on every piece, yeah. <laughs> Love that. No, I okay. Two come to mind. I am doing gold lettering on a real high-end English shotgun. Um, won't mention the name, but it's very well-known name, extremely high-end, right? And I'm I'm doing I'm putting all this gold in there, and a neighbor comes over and he looks at it. And he said, uh, is there a reason why you put red gold in these letters and yellow gold in those? Uh -oh. <laughs> uh -huh. For the colorblind guy, you have to be very careful to keep the yellow and the copper and the red and the green all separated because I can't see the difference. Oh, wow. You just tell him it was variegated gold. Yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I was so glad that he came and saw that before I sent that off. That's a good so one. What do, you, what do you do? You take it out? Yeah. Yeah, you just have to okay. take it out and put the right stuff back in, which wow. I made him confirm which the right one was before I put it in. Yeah. And I have to go ask my wife once in a while, is, is this yellow gold or is this copper? What, what do I have here? You know, oh, wow. uh, before we move off that subject, I want to tell you, uh, I'm going to confess something. Every single time that I gold inlay anything, I think about Lee Griffiths because one time, the very first time I went to the FIGA convention, Lee repaired a gold inlay right there at the show. And oh, wow. so whenever I'm having trouble, I think, well, if Lee can repair something at a show without all the stuff he needs, surely I can get this done at my house with all the tools at my disposal. Surely I can get it done. The Idaho farm boy knows how to fix things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Sean. Yes. Did you tell us something last time or had I not started that? It, what what has not worked out in your, in your line of business? Oh my gosh, I don't even know. I, don't, I must have said something, but I don't know for sure. I mean, I've had commissions, you know, where people just would, were not happy and I did everything I could, you know, and they want changes. And sometimes I'll do changes, but every once in a while, you know, I've had those that, that didn't work out. So I walked away from them and I've had some that, I mean, I've had, oh God, I've had so many. Like Lee said, isn't every single project has something you have to fix, whether it's a painting project or a the knives. I mean, I've done some, made some knives where I broke the tip off after I heat treated it or something like that. Or yeah. Have you always. ever done a painting thinking that you were working to the specs of one person? And then when it came time to debut the painting, a totally different person, usually that person's wife steps into it and, and has some things to say about it. I did the opposite one time where I painted this guy's wife for him and I, it was very, it wasn't huge. So the head was tiny. Um, and I just, you know, I simplify things. I edit things. I try to make people look like they want to look, I guess, or how they feel they look. And maybe I simplify it too much. So this guy had told, he's like, no, my wife's mouth is, she, her jaws should be more crooked on the left. And one eye is actually higher than it. she's like, saying all these things where I'm like, I don't think you should be telling me this, but I'll fix it for you. And, and so I did, I was like, I can see what she looks like in the photo. So I just made all the little changes for him and he was happy. But yes, <laughs> kind of like that. Well, you never know what people will find attractive. That's for sure. Never do. I mean, I got married after all. So, well, fellas. I sure do appreciate you taking the time to be here. And uh, I guess that's about it. We'll go ahead and wrap it up. So thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for having me too. And it was great talking to you both. We'll see you again. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, that was a fun show to record. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it too. Thank you to Sean and Lee. They were both very accommodating with their busy schedules. A couple of top-notch dudes. Remember that Lee has his Drawing Fundamentals class this Thursday, May the 4th. Be with you. And also with you. 7 p.m. Mountain Time. If you're hearing this episode when it's first released, you can still sign up for this course. Contact Lee on his Facebook page. If you're hearing this in the future, what do shoes look like? Are we living in geodesic domes? Future people may very well be able to buy a video of Lee's class. 
God knows what kind of laser discs or crystals will be the media of your time. Good luck. That's all for today. The show's music was by James Gregg. Thanks for listening. See you next time.